Good morning to you. Another sermon about demonic activity, right? It's very common in the Bible. Well, it's common in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. But it's been common since the beginning of time, hasn't it? Context for our passage begins in in verse 14. And so really verses 24 to 28 is part two of, of what we looked at last week. But let me go through it again briefly. Jesus is casting out a demon in, in eleven fourteen. Just simply says, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. He cast it out. The mute man spoke. This man who could not speak could now speak. He was stunned. The, the crowds were amazed. It even says that. Crowds were amazed. But not all were convinced. There's always a skeptic in a crowd. Here there's multiple ones. We're not told how many. In fact, Matthew's gospel says it's not a bunch of atheists sitting around saying this can't happen. It's the religious leaders. It's the people who are religious. It's the Pharisees, the scribes, the conservative theologians of the day were the ones that didn't want to believe in Jesus. They did not want to believe that he was the Messiah. They had every reason to believe, but they didn't want to believe. Think about that. With every reason to believe that he is the Messiah, because he is, why would people not want him to be the Messiah? What Messiah were they looking for? Well, Messiah means someone who's going to come along. And I mean, it's Messiah in the Old Testament. It's from a Hebrew word. It says Mashiach. And we call him Christ in the New Testament because the New Testament's written in Greek. Christos. It's the same person. Messiah, Christ, means the anointed one. In case you were confused, it's not a last name. Jesus' last name wasn't from the family of Christ. He was Jesus of Nazareth. A lot of people were named Jesus. It's Yeshua. It's from Joshua. But he is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ. Why didn't they want him? You have to know that you have a need for the Messiah, for the anointed one. One's need, when we evaluate our needs, we discover. I should say discover. Some do. Some discover that they're sinners and unable to get out of their sin. Have you ever figured that out? I mean, you all recognize you're not perfect. Everybody will say, well, I'm not perfect. Okay, that's the most obvious thing ever. Who can't say that? I'm not perfect. Well, here's the really bad news about being imperfect. You're going to hell as a result. That's how bad it is to be imperfect. You're visiting today and you're thinking, he's already said hell. Let's leave, dear. I always remember this great story of these, uh, my, my in-laws have these, these friends, and, and they were inviting them to church years ago, 30-plus years ago. And they said, look, if, if he says anything about hell or money or does that, <laughs> pounds of the pulpit, you know, as mean preachers do, and looks over the top of their glasses like I, in my older age, have had to do, we're not coming back. And my, my mother-in-law said, I'll be darned if... And she would never even say darned, by the way, but she's never. <laughs> she said, I'll be doggone if the preacher didn't say, talk about money, hell, and bang that pulpit. And you know, those people didn't see it, didn't hear it. They came to know Christ. That day they learned that they were sinful and in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter. You know, I, I love the story because it means that there are certain things that people might be looking for in a church that if they see or if they, if they hear, they're, they're out the door. But if God's Spirit is either here and in control or he isn't. Correct? And I hope that's what you pray for. Lord, let, let, let your Spirit today permeate. Don't greet me on the foyer and say, I hope you got a good one today. Preach it really hard today because our neighbors finally are here. Just pray that the Spirit of God will speak. I'm only the messenger. There will always be in a crowd people amongst the, the Spirit of God permeating a crowd. There will always be skeptics. They don't want to believe. They have to give up too much to believe. The scribes and Pharisees had to give up too much to believe that Jesus was the Christ. One of which was their own dominion, their own authority and power. If we give that, if He's the Messiah, then we have to turn it over to Him. We don't want Him. Yet He showed every indication that He was the Messiah. At this point, he hasn't been crucified and raised from the dead, but that was the cherry on top, was it not? I mean, can you think of anybody else who died and came back to life three days later? 
You think, yes, Lazarus did. Yes, he did because Jesus brought him back. But here's the difference between Lazarus and Jesus. Lazarus died again. Lazarus was only resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. He was the firstborn from among the dead in glory. Do you know anyone else who's ever had that? Anyone else? No, of course you don't, because he's the only one. Jesus is the Messiah. And yet there are skeptics, those who saw him firsthand. Some are amazed. Some say, no, what he just did, he cast that demon out by the power of Satan, whom they called Beelzebul, just another name for Satan. So they are relegating Jesus' authority to the devil. Jesus knows their thoughts in verse 17, and he said, look, that's impossible. That'd be ridiculous. If I'm casting out devils by the power of the devil, then Satan, though uh, sinful and horrible, is absurd, and Satan is not absurd. He's not that dense as to turn against himself. And all of the works of, of Jesus can't be the works of the devil, All glory is given to God. He is the power of God. He is God in flesh. Nevertheless, people were saying, well, he does what he does by the power of the devil. And Jesus just gives them a little story in here. says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast them out by Beelzebul... By whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, how are your sons, your, the Jewish exorcists of the day, how are they finding some bit of success, assuming they were finding any success? Maybe they were yelling loud enough that the demon inside a particular person was going, fine, we'll leave, just stop yelling. Maybe their incense that they roll around in people's face, maybe the demon inside the person was going, we, that reeks, we're leaving. I don't know, I'm being silly. We don't know that they had any success. But Jesus is saying, if I do what I do by the power of the devil, that must mean that your people are doing it by the devil. How can you tell the difference? The difference is is that everyone Jesus freed from the devil was freed immediately. Their lives were transformed in that moment, and he didn't have to do a bunch of yelling. And he didn't need incense. Everything happened immediately. Verse 20 says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, in other words, if it's by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's kingdom is now among you now. I'm different than your exorcists, your Jewish exorcists. They didn't bring in the kingdom because they probably weren't doing anything. I'm actually casting demons out, Jesus is saying. That means the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then he speaks of Satan in verse 21 as a strong man, fully armed. When he guards his own house and his possessions, they're undisturbed. He's fully armed. And I told you last week that that Satan's possessions are people. He guards them closely. Had people knock on my door recently. They were nice people. You know those nice people that knock on your door. They wanted to tell me about their God. And I'll give them credit. They got straight to the point. What do you think about Jesus? I think he's the son of God. I think he's God in the flesh. I knew where it was going. I knew they were going to say, oh, praise God. Let's pray, brother. We're with the Baptist church down the street. That, no. They looked at me and they said, do you have a Bible? Do I have a Bible? Yes, I have a Greek Bible. Let's take a look at the Greek Bible. I knew what they were going for. They seemed to not understand what a Greek Bible was. I mean, they have what's called the New World Translation of the Bible. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses version. It's their own butchered up version. They've taken out every reference in their Bible to the deity of Christ. And so I began to talk to them about who Jesus was, and they began to pull back. You know, how, you know that's what you do when you're trying to get out of a conversation. You just, uh-huh. <laughs> eventually you hope you're far enough to say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you, you have to go. So I came out of my house, and I kept coming closer. <laughs> and down my driveway, up my walkway is, are steps. So if you're not watching where you're going, you're going to fall. Anyway, the girl who was, who was the, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses always carry someone who thinks they know what they're talking about, and then someone who's a student. And she was fixated. They always are. They, they seem to be. I've never seen one that going, mm, no, no. She was fixated, and I looked at her, as I always do the younger one, and I said, look, when you are relieved from this false teaching, please remember my address. And I said, look around. Please come back here. That way you'll know you can get the gospel. I say that to all of them. 
Perhaps we should come back and bring someone bigger. Do, please, please do. I'll show them the Bible. And he kept, I think he asked me three times if I had a Bible. Do you have a Bible? Yes, I have a Bible. You're starting a verse and I'm finishing it. And he was. They have a, I know exactly where they're going. I know the verses that they... And that's the thing is if you know the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a little, little circuit of verses that they come to show you. Get them off their game and show them over here. Here's what it really says. And some of them will actually say, ah, I didn't know that was there. You want to know why? Because you never read it. You are being duped by your superiors to tell you that this is all the Bible says. This little circle of passages. Let me tell you about the Messiah. These are Satan's possessions. He's the strong man looking out over them. Verse 22, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. That's Jesus. That's the gospel going to one of Satan's possessions and watching them step away. And watching them just want to get away. And when they said, we're going to go away, we're going to walk away, the guy, he was a... He didn't have good English. He said, we're going to go away. I said, well, don't go down to my neighbors because you're treading on my territory. I don't know what he thought of that. Just a big smile. I I went back in the house and I thought, I need to just walk down and follow them everywhere they go now. (laughs) But I thought of that later. It was a little too late for that. Point being is I I recognize these are, this is Satan's house. He's guarding them. And he sent him to the wrong house. When he comes to your house, make sure that's the wrong house for them. Not that they get some argument. I wasn't yelling at them. I was just simply, you want to know who Jesus is? You ask the question, I'll tell you who he is. From the Bible. From every Bible I own. And show you in your Bible where it's wrong. And Jesus says in verse 23, he said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. That means Jesus is saying there is no middle ground with him. You cannot take a neutral road with Jesus. You're either all in or you're not in at all. You can't think Jesus is just okay. You cannot be a person. You might be a Sunday morning person. I come to church once a month, twice. Or maybe you're, you're of the CEO crowd. You know, the Christmas, Easter only. CEOs. Um, You can't be that. You can't salute Christ and say, yeah, you know, we've got a deal. We've got this deal. You won't bother me, Lord. I won't bother you. You know, I'm a good person. There there is no such person. There are no deals. It's all or nothing. We bow the knee to him or we bow the knee to ourselves. If you do not gather with Jesus, you scatter. You might say, well, I'm not working against Jesus. But by not working against him, you are working against him. And so Jesus goes back in verse 24, speaking of this unclean spirit that he just cast out in verse 14. He says, when an unclean spirit, by the way, it's just another phrase for for demon, could just as easily say when the demon or the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now the house here is the person. Jesus is using this parable. So, when an unclean spirit goes out, probably just from what this this man has been, had a demon cast out of him in verse 14, Jesus is saying, here's where it's going. Here's what it's going to do. It's going to pass through arid places, which waterless means dry places. What does that mean? Does that mean you won't find demons in the water? I I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know that it means that. I think that, uh, in fact, back in those days, the the Jews believed that the, the abode of demons was the wilderness, the dry, arid Wilderness. That's why Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days, perhaps. Uh, he goes through waterless places. It leaves the person, passes out, or passes out of the man, and seeks rest. So this demonic spirit, this unclean spirit, is now gone, having been successfully exorcised, or maybe just of its own volition, left its, its host, and is now looking for some other host. We recall that when Jesus cast out the demons from the, the two demoniacs, um, they said, please cast us in the herd of swine. Jesus said, "With you know, he didn't say that. He said, sure. I, and he did. And where did they go? Into the water. Apparently demons don't like that. They were killed with the, with the swine. But it leaves. This would, be, this would illustrate a person who has been relieved of something. 
We're not told that this man was throwing himself around and spittle coming out of his mouth everywhere like others in the Bible that we see are demonically oppressed. It could very well just be a man who, who uh, uh, was a bit nuts, a bit crazy, couldn't put thoughts together well. Maybe he was uh, controlled by uh, too much alcohol. And at this point, he's been relieved of it. Um, I was reading just this past week uh, about a particular um, a comedian, a well-known comedian, been around for a long time, who is, uh, is now very forthcoming about the, the hell in which he lives. Uh, he, he speaks of his life as being fully depressed. He says, I'm a mess, a total wreck. My anxiety, my, my depression, he says, I'm on drugs. I can't, that doesn't fix it. He spoke of how he hates going to bed at night. Can't stand to be alone and the lights go out. Therefore, he doesn't sleep well. And he said, the only way I can conquer it is through comedy and, and being with people and keeping busy. And I thought, what a horrible existence. You know, and just using foul language throughout it, clearly the man knows nothing of Christ other than he probably hates Christ. Oh, I would love to get an opportunity to share Christ with him. And maybe it's already been shared with him. But maybe this guy, he gets fixed. Some, guy, some person with depression or something, they go to a, a counselor and they're, and they're fighting their own demons, maybe literally or figuratively. And they receive from a psychiatrist a drug. And the drug fixes them, or at least makes them better. Hey, they're feeling better. You see them a couple weeks later and you ask how they're doing. They go, much better now. I got the right doctor. I've got the right meds. Okay, you rejoice with them. Fantastic. We want you to do better. That's this person, folks. Because the meds are not Christ. It hasn't fixed anything permanently. Or maybe it's someone who's an alcoholic and they've, they've gone through the 12-step program. And the 12 steps have, have helped them. And they are now free from, from their attachment to alcohol. And they're sober and they've been sober for however many years. It's fantastic. That's great. 12-step program. We like that. I'm not here to put that down. But that's not the fix. That's the man whose demon has left. And once a problem is fixed without Christ, a med, a a program, bullet points that you go through and do self-talk, the demon leaves. And it seeks rest. But it doesn't find any. And when it doesn't find any, it says, this is the demon speaking, middle of verse 24. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. That house is a person. And when it comes and finds it swept and put in order, it comes and finds itself swept and in order. In other words, it comes back to the host and finds, ah, my drunkard has gone through a 12-step program, is now clean and sober. It finds it inviting. It's swept, clean, and put in order. What does it do? Can't go in there. 12-step program fixed him. Antidepressant meds have fixed him. No, verse 26. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits. Note this, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the activity of a demon. It leaves for whatever reason. Maybe a Jewish exorcist did cast out the demon. The person feels better. They've not filled the void in their life with the Word of God and the Christian dispensation with Jesus Himself. They're just doing their best now. They're popping a pill every day or however many times a day. Ah, just the right recipe for the Spirit to come back and say, now let me make Him worse than He was the first time. This proves that there are Degrees of spiritual wickedness in the demonic realm. How about that? That there are demons that are more wicked than another. Why one demon, believing it to be more righteous than others, would take more wicked demons than itself, seven of them. Either it's a a literal number, seven, including the first one, and now there's eight, or maybe seven is just a, a number for totality. Either way, the final state of that man is worse than at first. People kick addictions all the time, and that's a good thing. Drug addictions, alcohol addictions, things they watch addictions. 
But usually they replace it with something else. I remember when my dad quit smoking back in the 70s. He, he added eating to it. And then he got his life spiritually together and he just was filled with the Spirit of God. And I remember admiring him for what he had gotten past. And he said, he would tell you, he said, that was the hardest thing I ever did was quit smoking after all the years he had done it. Usually people replace one with another. We give up smoking and now we're going to take up what? Dipping. And we're going to kick dipping and we're going to start what? Vaping. (laughs) They're all addictions, aren't they? It's a reliance on something else. Or as I said, food. We're going to quit this drug and take up this drug. We're going to stop watching this and start doing that. It doesn't fix you. When one demon goes out and you fix something, there's others waiting to enter. That ought to frighten us to death. This is what Jesus is saying. Look, the man, although I've cast the demon out, and by the power of God I did it because I am God, this man, he's essentially saying, is not fixed until he receives me. He's not going to be himself at rest until he replaces the void of that demonic oppression with God himself. So I've got to ask you, rhetorically speaking, what is it that you're trying to kick? What is it that you need to do less of or completely kick altogether? What? What are you doing to try to stop that? Maybe you failed up to this point and you think, well, I just need to try harder. I just need to try. What does it mean to try harder? Here's the answer, my friends. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with the Spirit of God. I was talking to my buddy here. He's five years sober. You mind if I tell everybody that? I already did. (laughs) He's five years sober. He went to, what was it, Grace? The home of Grace in Louisiana? Mississippi. Mississippi. There are some good things in Mississippi, aren't there? And they showed this man not only how to kick his habit with Christ, but pushed him and told him, look, when you leave here, you're going back into a world full of demons. Find a Bible teaching church. Well, he didn't hear about Harvest Bible Church and say, well, I'm going there. He runs into Doug, uh, Doug Horton, our music and youth guy here. And, uh, and he said, yeah, come to Harvest Bible Church. We can't get rid of Brock now. He just won't leave. And Cheryl and I got a chance to hear his testimony again the other night in the car. We all went out to dinner and, and just hearing him, hearing him talk about what God has done and what God continues to do. It would have been a great story if he'd have kicked his drug habit. Just that in itself is a wonderful story. But the really great story is that he kicked it and filled the void in his life with Christ. Or shall I say, God filled it for him and continues to control him. He's no longer under the influence of drugs. He's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Are you? Or does it take a drug to bring you under an influence? Does it take a certain amount of drinks to calm you down? I played golf all my life, as you know, and and one of the ways I could not, I couldn't get over the hump, A, I had no talent. B, when I would get under par, it scared me. My knees knocked. It was like singing in front of you over here with a guitar around my neck. Two under par. Three under par at one point. And, and I, all I'm looking for is the clubhouse. I just, God, please just get me to the clubhouse. And it, just par out these holes. And, and it never happened. It gets in your head. Double bogey, triple bogey. All right, well, this is over now. And I learned from one of the guys I played with who was not a Christian at the time. He said, Waldy, what you didn't know was that we were drinking He said, we knew you would judge us, but we had something in our bag that took the edge off. What? What, what, Bible verses? No. Cheating. That's cheating. Folks, God gives us the difficulties in life, the knocking knees, the fear, the waking up in the middle of the night wondering what's going on to draw us to Him. Not a drink, not a pill, not a television show. Him. He is the the filler of the void. The God-shaped hole in your life can only be filled by Him. Jesus is saying, here's what happens. In other words, morality, becoming moral, is not the answer. 
Morality without Christ is simply being, being a good person and going to hell. While Jesus was saying these things, verse 27, one of the women in the crowd, and I love, we're not told who this woman is, but she's bold in the midst of the, of the Pharisees and scribes shouting down Jesus and the skeptics. Here comes a woman's voice. She wasn't even supposed to be heard, but she didn't care. I wish we had her name. She yells out in the crowd. She raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. In other words, Jesus, your mama must be proud of you. It's essentially what she's saying. Probably one of those people that, uh, um, uh, that likes to call out in church when they see a, a, a speaker or even the preacher struggling or some, someone who's singing, you ever, you ever heard someone singing and they're struggling and, and someone just gets up, they stand up and they start clapping or something? Or the preacher is stuttering through and, and someone says, amen? You think they're annoying, the one speaking is encouraged by that for a moment at least. Can be. Can also be annoyed. But she raises her voice in the midst of all this skepticism. I'm with you, Jesus. Blessed be your mama. And you know, Jesus does not say, you're right, unnamed woman. You are right. My mother, Mary, is to be blessed above all women. You remember when Elizabeth saw Mary? Elizabeth was, uh, what, three months pregnant when Mary saw her. And when Mary saw her, the baby in her womb leaped. Elizabeth said this. The baby in my womb leaped when he heard your voice. John the Baptist heard the voice of Jesus in the womb because he's a baby, you know. He's a real person. Amen. Like I need to tell you that, right? He, this real person was filled with the Spirit of God inside the womb. And she says, blessed are you among women. Yes, Mary, blessed among women. You know that Sarah is called blessed among women. Abraham's wife, as was Rebecca, as was Leah who married Jacob. That baton was later passed to Mary who brought to fruition the promise that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives. She is blessed. Mary herself says in, in Luke 148, she says in Luke 142, Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women. Mary says it of herself in, in uh, Luke 148. Blessed. All generations will call me blessed. Jesus does not take that bait. When this woman says, blessed be the womb that bore you, he doesn't say, yes, pray to her. You know who I'm talking to. I don't want to be ugly. I want the Word of God to free anyone with a Roman Catholic background who's been taught to pray to this woman to repent of that. She cannot hear you. She is deceased. She's never heard a prayer. She, in her own prayer called the Magnificat, in Luke's gospel, she calls herself, she calls her, her God her Savior. Blessed be my Savior. Who, who calls Him a Savior unless they need to be saved? Let's turn over there, just so you don't think that I'm making this up. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. It's called the Magnificat. Magnificat is a Latin word for the first word Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord. Luke 1, 46, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, or magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in who? God, my Savior. She says in verse 48, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. This woman says it. Blessed be the womb that gave you birth, Jesus. And so we should look at it, not only from what she says, or what Jesus, how Jesus responds, but what he doesn't say. Yes, pray to her. Pray to her so that she can come to me and I'll give you what you need. He says this in verse 28. On the contrary... 
which is what the New American Standard Bible says. I don't think that's the best translation to say on the contrary. I think he's just saying yes. He's not um, rebuking her or reproving her. Let me, let me make this rhyme. He's not reproving her. He's improving her. Mary is blessed. He's not telling, oh, you're wrong. She's not blessed. She's just, she's nobody. He doesn't say that at all because that would be wrong. He doesn't reprove her. He improves what she says. She gives a beatitude, which is to say, blessed be. And Jesus says, on the contrary, or yes, but blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That gives us all the possibility of being blessed right alongside Mary. Folks, again, I, do, I don't ever want to sound ugly or sarcastic or rude. I know that I come across that way at times. False teaching tends to do that to me. Messed up lives frustrates me. I get mop-up duty sometimes as a counselor from all the false teaching that, that has happened over a course of a person's life and they're in my office and we're trying to clean up the mess of bad theology. In this case, praying to Mary. Mary was a great woman. But what's greater? Who's greater than Mary? Right here. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That's who's blessed. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to not struggle as the comedian I told you earlier with going to bed at night and being scared out of your mind? Do you want to be able to function through life with without all the turmoil of of what's going on outside there in the world, all the threat of war, the threat of freedoms being taken away from us? To read and know the Word of God is to know that God is on His throne. The whole world is in the palm of His hand. There's nothing happening that He hasn't given permission to happen. What a God we serve. He told us these things are going to happen, folks. He also told us this, it's going to get worse. Which means he's in control. He knows what's going to happen. Blessed are you to even hear that. That's the word of God. When we looked at Martha and Mary, Martha was working hard to prepare dinner. Mary, however, sat at the feet of Jesus. And Martha came and said, Lord, don't you care that she's not helping me? Tell her to help me. Oh, sorry, Martha. Mary, get in there and help fix dinner. We're going to be eating in 20 minutes. No. He says, Martha, Martha, in this compassionate tone, because he loved Martha, and he saw Martha's error. Mary has chosen the better, and I'm not taking it away from her. What was the better? To sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. Because to hear it is to give the potential to obey it. Notice he doesn't just say, those who come to church and hear the word of God. Back in those days, people didn't go home with the Bible. They didn't come to synagogue with the Bible. They didn't have printing presses in those days. If you were wealthy, you could copy from a scroll and have something. But you went to the synagogue regularly and heard the Word of God taught and spoken, as you do in church. But we don't just have the ability to hear it. We can take our Bible, go home, and read it. And if you've got a a downloadable app or a phone, you know, an iPhone or or uh, I don't know if that's the dark side to you, then another, another kind of phone, a phone, a smartphone. They're all dumb phones, aren't they? Download an app, and you know what else about the app on those phones? They'll talk to you too. And if you get bored with the, with the, with the slowness of God so loved the world, crank it up to two. It goes faster. Yeah, I know this part. I know this part. We can hear it. I'm driving to Dallas today. I'm going to get at least 100 chapters of the Bible listened to just by driving. How about that? I love doing that. Love it because it's all in one. It's all there. Boom, flush, all on my, in my ears, hearing the Word of God. I sit silent. I can pray through it. I can think about it. I can put it together with what I'm studying to teach in sermons, Bible studies. I can fit it together with how I'm counseling some particular person. It permeates my life, and it's my advice to give to others on how to live their lives, how to obey it. Listening to it and observing it, obeying it. That's what Jesus said. It brings blessing. You want blessing? Evaluate how much Bible you're reading. How many of you are still on your January 1st quest to read through the Bible in a year? Or did you fizzle out somewhere around Exodus chapter 22? 
when it got a little bit boring. When you thought, I don't care about the tabernacle. I don't care about the candlesticks. I don't care about the curtains in the temple. What's all this? You fizzled out there, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't hear any amens on that one. But you'll pick it back up. Your, your conviction will get you back. And next year you'll start it again and you'll end it. Maybe you make it to Leviticus. Mix in the Old Testament with the New Testament. You don't have to just start in Genesis and, and just make your way there. Read Genesis and then flip over and read Matthew. And read the Psalm right in the middle. Psalms right in the middle. Everybody should get a one-year Bible, by the way. The one-year Bible combines them together. And by the end of say, 365 days, you've read the Bible. It's so important to read the Bible. I, I mean, all, I can't say this is just, it's not a request. It's, the, it's a demand. I can't make demands of you. But can I make a strong request? Read God's Word. This is where you're falling off. This is where the problems lie. If you don't know God's Word, then you have no equipment for which to battle the enemy that is oppressing you. You don't have to try harder. You just have to open it more. Every chair in my house, I noticed this the other day, I didn't even do it on purpose, I don't think. Every chair in my house, every chair in my office, everywhere I go in my truck, in Cheryl's car, is a Bible. They're everywhere. I can't sit down without a Bible. I've got one, two, three Bibles here and an iPad. And my phone would probably talk to me the Bible, or my watch probably would if I needed it. Oh, where's my Bible? Well, I just tell my watch to preach. Give it the microphone. It's everywhere. Don't... Miss out on an opportunity. Well, I only have an old King James Bible. You know, you know that they sell Bibles everywhere, right? You know you can get them on, uh, online. You can go to bookstores and buy the Bible. In fact, here's a tidbit you might not know. We will give you a brand new Bible. Cellophane and all. Study Bible, we'll give you one of those. You want to use Bible, we'll give you one of those. We have 10,200,000 children's Bibles that have been left here over the years. And they have colorful um, book covers. But you know what? They're still the Bible. I think I didn't put it on your outline because as I'd make the outline on Thursday mornings. Uh, and Thursday morning I send it over to, to be printed there. But I still continue to work on the sermon throughout the court, what's left of the week even up to Sunday morning. And so I, I've been thinking about this a lot and, and thinking about all the ways in which we, we, are, we are trying to bring about a great society without Christ. And so I want to warn you a few things before we close today. I mean, I, you'll see that I titled the sermon is Moral Revival Without Jesus with a question mark. Can you have a moral revival without Jesus? Yes. That there can be a moral revival. People can get their act together, start acting and behaving properly. We know that. that we, would, we would accept that, wouldn't we? If that's all we can get, okay. But as Christians, that is not what we're after. And it can't be what we're after. We are not out to make the world more moral. Are we? We are out to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Morality follows. That's the fruit that overflows from knowing Christ. Number one, we can't abandon the saving gospel for a social gospel. What's a social gospel? Well, that's just everybody living together and just saying things like, we love Jesus. Have you learned to hate that statement? I, I really do. I, I, that might surprise some of you. Is I hate to hear the statement when somebody says, oh, they love Jesus. Because I don't know that they know who Jesus is. What Jesus? I see different versions of Jesus in the different people that knock on my door and in the different books I read. What Jesus are you talking about? The Jesus from the Bible is God in flesh. The Jesus in the Bible is a holy and awesome God, and you don't want to mess with him. The Jesus in the Bible is not that character on the chosen. That's not Jesus. And frankly, I think it, it takes a great bit of gall to play Jesus over the course of however many years in a movie. I think you've got to start having a Jesus syndrome in your own mind. I don't think it's right. I don't think any of us should even have a, a face in mind. I wish everyone that plays Jesus in a movie would have their face blocked out. I don't want to know what they look. I don't want to associate Jesus with him. Not that I have any problem with the man. Jesus to me is James Powell from, from uh, the 1976 version, Jesus of Nazareth. Was he from Israel, a Jewish man? He's from England. 
got blue eyes. That's Jesus in my mind. Social gospel, make him good looking, make him cool, make him funny. Make him wallow on the ground with the guys and swim in the, in the sea and, and have a good old time. You don't want to mess with Jesus. He is God in flesh. To reject him is to choose hell, an eternity of fire. Jesus is not to be trifled with. He is not our buddy. We are not to turn this gospel of Jesus Christ into a social gospel. The gospel is the gospel. You are a sinner. Jesus is God. And by his grace, he saves those who receive him by faith. Number two, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come to call the self-righteous. Those are his words. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. I came to call those who are sick. Well, as we know, everyone's sick, but not all think they are. Jesus came to call those who who realize, Lord, I'm at the end of myself. Lord, I can't sleep at night. Lord, these meds are not working. All this alcohol is not helping. All the TV I'm watching is not helping. The comedy is, is helps me in the hour and a half I'm on stage, and then I go home, and it's back. I'm at the end of myself. God, help me. God came to call those who recognize their need to call you to repentance, to receive Him. He will relieve you. Oh my goodness, will He relieve you? Now, in no way was I earlier trying to cut down the movie The Chosen. Hey, with all the garbage that's out there, watch The Chosen. It's good stuff. I haven't seen any heresy in it. In fact, Cheryl and I watched another one last night, two of them. We just love the the, the one with the, the woman that was bleeding. We just reached in to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. It was a very moving scene. I mean, we've read it in the Bible. It's good enough in the Bible, but it was acted out. And, and she just had this, this joy. And she, she goes down to the Sea of Galilee, just a new woman. And I love the feeling in her. And I told Cheryl, I said, that's the feeling that we should have every day of our lives. Even though we haven't just been set free. I've been a Christian. I'm 54 years old. I I came to Christ at my Baptist church when I was eight. Came to Christ. I really just walked up front and got baptized. Got wet. I think it was more around the age of 15 when I figured out what was going on. But notwithstanding, that feeling, that was that feeling of relief. I've been forgiven of my sins. It shouldn't just be on a movie for one person that just was relieved of her 12-year bleeding problem. It's all of us every day to wake up and say, I'm free. I'm free. I love that song from Mercy Me called Undone. Undone. It's a double entendre, as good songs are. He's talking about himself, I've become undone. I've done with myself, I'm undone. And my shackles, the chains that bound me, have become undone. I am undone. Love that song. Love what it speaks of. That is a person set free from their demons. That is a person who is not only set free, but had the void that the demons filled, filled with God. It's not a social gospel. It's not self-righteous. It's for those who know they're unrighteous. Number three, trying to affect moral change without the gospel likens us to atheists and Mormons. They're moral too. If morality is all it is, then they're going to heaven too. And furthermore, it causes us to yoke ourselves together with them for some common purpose. And we are not to be yoked together with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Look it up yourself. We are not to be yoked together with unbelievers in marriage, in business, in the common good. We are to be about the task of sharing Christ with the lost. Jesus condemned the moralists. We'll get there in Luke chapter 11, later on in this chapter. In Matthew 23, the most moral people of the day were the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is lambasting the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes and hypocrites. And the scribes said, Jesus, when you call them those names, you offend us too. And Jesus said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. He just turns it around. Glad you brought it up, scribes. Woe to you, scribes, too. The moralists of the day, Jesus lambased them. He didn't call us to be moral. He called us to surrender our lives to Him. Jesus told us, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, what we call the Great Commission, go and make 
moralists. No, he said to make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations, not moralists. And keeping in mind, according to Isaiah 64, 4 to 6, what are our righteous deeds like? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Moralism might make people better, and it might, but the gospel will transform their soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms a person from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Howie Mandel, that's the one I'm talking about, by the way. Howie Mandel may be delivered from some of his ailments. But when he receives Christ, he will move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I love, I love being alone, by the way. I want you to know that. I love being alone because when I'm alone, that's when I know most that God is with me. He's everywhere anyway, isn't he? You can't escape him. I love peace. I'm a loner in that regard. I love just being, and who are you when you are by yourself? Who am I when I'm by myself? I love knowing, Lord, I'm, I can't hide anything from you. I can hide things from you, but I can't hide from him. I always picture God, his face is constantly here. I turn here, he's here. He's just constantly, you're going, get, He's always, you can't escape. He's there. He sees inside of what I would never let you see. And yet, he loves me. The God of all creation, this holy and awesome God loves a wretch like me. If he loves me, he's got to love you. I don't know that I'm worse than you. I'm not going to be, show some false humility. We're all worse. But our God is loving and transforms us from darkness to light. Moralism was never the message of Christ. It was never the message of the Old Testament prophets, and it was never the message of the apostles. If it's the message of the pastor of the church where you attend, leave that church. We are to tell people they are sinners in need of a Savior. Joel Osteen takes the cake of the false teachers on this planet because he will not talk about sin and all he has to talk about is doing good and being moral and living your best life today. He does it with a smile and he's got a lot of money and it looks like he's blessed by God. The man is possessed by the devil. And don't forget that. You say, well, that's awfully harsh, Lance. Don't I love you? Wouldn't a shepherd with his sheep, if the sheep could hear him talk, say, don't go over to that field over there. There are wolves over there. Oh, shepherd, you don't need to call names. You don't need to call them names. They're God's creatures too, wolves. Don't go there. They're wolves. They will eat you. And a sheep would, because sheep are notoriously pig-headed people. I was going to say stupid animals, but that's just what came out. <laughs> and I'm at the front of the list. Moralism was never taught by them. Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Galatians 2.21, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Another point, God's kingdom is not of this world. You want to try to bring in a kingdom of morality? That might make for good living. Might bring us back to what we, what we loved about this country in the 70s and 80s. God's kingdom is not of this world. Morality cannot be separated from theology. Morality cannot be separated from theology. What is theology, Lance? It's the study of God. Theos. God, ology, study of, study of God. That's what theology is. What does the Bible say about God? That's theology. The theology of God here is that Jesus is saying, I am the way. That void in your life only I can fill. So I'll conclude. Be scared. Be frightened. If you're out there trying to fill a void in your life with anything but Christ, you might have some temporary reprieve. 
It might come to you. You might go away and say, I've had five years sobriety, 10 years, whatever it may be. 12-step program, these meds, those meds. Christ and Christ alone. It's not Christ plus drugs. It's not Christ plus a 12-step program. It's Christ and Christ alone. You know, the maker of heaven and earth. The savior of our souls. The one who died, was whipped to death, crucified, and rose on the third day. That's the God I'm talking about. Can he not do all things? Is there anything in your life that he cannot do? I'll answer your question. No, there isn't. Let him fill the void. Because if you try to fill it with something other than him, it will come back upon you and the last state of your soul will be worse than it was prior. Let us pray. Father, we are indeed sheep. You told us and now we know it. We are defenseless. We are thick-headed. We think we know and we know nothing. So may we know your word. May we seek it. May you give us that desire, an insatiable desire for your word, not only to read it, but to obey it. Because we want to be blessed, even above the woman that gave you birth in your humanity. God, may the longing of our souls be you. And that medium through which you have given it is in your word, written by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. May we seek it in your word. May you fill us. And all the things that we want in society, may that just simply be the fruit that flows from us, from knowing you. If there be a sinner here today who has never received your salvation, the forgiveness that you grant freely and without charge, May they not leave here today without at least knowing that. And certainly may they receive it. May they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and God through the simple prayer of, Lord, I trust you, I love you, save my wretched soul. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. May God bless you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 